Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Kevin Case is one of the most sought-after attorneys in our industry, as he represents musicians and artists nationwide in labor and employment matters, including the drafting and negotiation of collective bargaining agreements for about two dozen orchestras, and individual employment contracts on behalf of symphony and opera musicians. Since 2015, he has served as general counsel to the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on, Joel. You're welcome. So you have an unusual combination of successful careers in both music and law. Now, I first met you in 1996, where you were concertmaster of the Memphis Symphony and where I landed my first job as principal cellist. You also held positions in the Grant Park Symphony, the Dallas Opera, and performed regularly with the Chicago Symphony and the Chicago Lyric Opera. It sounds like you were living the musician's dream. What inspired you to change course? Well, yeah, good question. And, and by the way, I, I really enjoyed our time together in Memphis. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was fun. You know, it wasn't any one thing. I would say it was a combination of a few things that made me want to make this change. To begin with, yeah, I, I was having a pretty decent career, but... You know, in music, the the goal is always total perfection, right? Yeah. And to advance all the way as, as far as you can. And, you know, I, I got the feeling that that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to, to be a concertmaster of a major orchestra. And the window on that possibility was starting to close. So I figured if I was going to make a change, that was the time. Law school had been something that had been in the back of my mind for years because I kind of needed to like exercise that that muscle in my brain. You know, I have a, a kind of analytic approach to things. And while you can use that in music to a certain extent, not that much. So I felt like there was more that I wanted to, to think about and explore and analyze. And law is perfect for that. And then also, I mean, I, I just liked the idea of helping my colleagues and helping fellow musicians. I got into it because... I was on the committee in the Grand Park Orchestra and eventually committee chair and negotiating a contract there. And, and that felt good. And that's kind of what inspired me to at least you know, start looking into law school. And since then, in the practice I have now, if I do my job right <laughs> and do it well, then musicians are working and they're making a decent living. And that feels pretty good. Yeah, I imagine so. So, then your goal was to be concertmaster. Well, that, that kind of was the track I was on. I was concertmaster in Memphis. That was my first real job out of school. In my last three years in Grand Park, I was a concertmaster there. I was concertmaster in a lot of freelance gigs around town. It was just something that came really naturally to me. But, you know, there's, there's only a handful of those jobs in the country. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So how much time do you spend playing the violin these days? You know, it kind of depends on the negotiation schedule. The good thing about once I started my own 
firm I you know I left the, the corporate law firm where they kind of owned me. Yeah. You know, my own firm I can be my own boss and set my own hours. If I feel like playing violin, there's always time to do it. And I keep up a fairly regular performance schedule, at least until the pandemic hit, um, with a group called Music of the Baroque in Chicago, which is a chamber orchestra. I would you know, enjoy playing with them and uh, keep in shape. Occasionally, I would also, in the summers, do a uh, wood, it used to be called the Woodstock Mozart Festival. Now it's called the Midwest Mozart Festival. I'm a concertmaster there, and I would play a concerto usually every summer. So that always gave me something to work on. Oh, yeah. These days, I had rotator cuff surgery at the end of June, so that kind of sidelined me for a while from playing violin. And I'm just you know starting to get back into it now, but it's a it's a very long and slow recovery from that surgery. Is that on your bow arm? Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, I imagine that would be harder to recover from, right? Yeah, yeah, it is because you just you really need that shoulder to be free and easy and have no tension whatsoever. And of course, <laughs> with major surgery, that's going to take a while. Yeah, and so before you had that surgery, how did you manage? to stay in shape on the violin and have a full-time law career, though. That seems like that would be pretty daunting. It's not easy. And, you know, I confess when I was working at a larger law firm before I started this practice, I, I really couldn't keep in shape very well. But again, I can set my own hours now. So that helps a lot. The, you know, the thing that would get in the way before the pandemic was travel. Because I work with orchestras all over the country, and you go someplace for three, four days, and obviously you really can't practice during that time. Though yeah. there were a few times I brought the fiddle with me if I had like a major concerto performance coming up, and I would practice in the hotel room after a bargaining session. Oh. Since the pandemic, though, I mean, I, I've done everything pretty much by uh, via Zoom from my home office, and the violin sits about eight feet away. So whenever I want, I can pick it up and play. And what would you say if you were telling other people, what would be the tips that you would give them on what you need to do to stay in shape? Do you need to practice every day? Do you need to just pick up the violin and play scales for 15 or 20 minutes a few times a week? Like, What's the method that you use to keep that muscle moving properly? Well, the, the main thing is it's, it's more mental than physical, sort of like mindlessly playing scales or an etude without thinking about it, isn't going to do a whole lot. I mean, yeah, it keeps the, the muscles moving, but it's so much more important to really think about what you're doing and analyze you know, what you're doing with the bow, what you're doing with the left hand. To the extent I can do that, you know, every day or every other day or whatnot, it doesn't matter so much how long I'm doing it as long as I'm doing it well. That's great. That's And I'm impressed by that, frankly, because I think it would be hard to stay motivated having – a foot really solidly in both worlds. I think that's a challenge that a lot of us struggle with just keeping in shape when we do this professionally by itself <laughs> without a law practice on the side. Oh, yeah. Well, and here's the other thing. When it's not what you have to do for a living, it's more enjoyable. Yeah. Because you know, let's face it, making a living as a musician is not easy. There are not that many jobs. They don't pay fantastically. So... It's always a bit of a struggle, and that can kind of influence how you feel about it. But I've noticed since I, I don't rely on that for my income, I mean, if whatever I, I get is kind of gravy, I just enjoy it so much more. I just do it because I like it, and I do it for me. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's the hard thing, transitioning from something you love and is sort of your escape, maybe in middle school and high school, mm. to making your living that way. Then you need to find another escape. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, it's not going to be music anymore. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on is because I wanted to talk about collective bargaining, since that's really your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to those of us in our audience that maybe don't know what collective bargaining is, what it is, and why musicians should care about it? Okay, well, so collective bargaining happens in a union workplace. So once you have a union workplace, you have to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement. And sometimes, depending on what type of workplace, it's the union that negotiates it. Other times, it's a committee made up of the employees who negotiates it, sometimes a little bit of both. But, you know, you need a collective bargaining agreement, a CBA, that governs all terms and conditions of employment. And they can get pretty complicated, especially with uh, some of the orchestras. I mean, CBAs that are over 100 pages long, uh -huh. you know, basically covering everything that could or possibly would happen. And everything we've learned that needs to be fixed as it yep. <laughs> goes along the way gets added to that pile. Yeah. Absolutely. If there was a, a problem at some time during the last contract, you're going to bet it's on the table in the next negotiation. And so these the contracts usually are enforced for not – a long period of time, three years is kind of the standard, but there are plenty of orchestras that have done shorter and longer, especially now in the in the pandemic, where there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. So a lot more short term agreements, but then sometimes longer term agreements because concessions have to be made and the musicians want to see some improvement over a period of time. Uh -huh. So when the terms of a contract end. Can you tell us what the logistics of negotiating that new contract look like? And a lot of them, of course, you've been negotiating a lot of one-year openers through the pandemic. Right. Because of all the changes, people have been having to change their contracts to go along with what the change is happening right now without concerts and pay and all of the other things. So obviously, we're in a huge moment of flux right now. But traditionally, what is the vehicle and how does this look when we go to negotiate? Right. So in normal times, pre-COVID times... Contracts usually expire before the start of the fall season, like August 31st is a common date of expiration. So in the year leading up to that, the orchestra votes on a committee to do the negotiating. So it's usually five or seven people that are elected by the musicians to form the committee. And then I will meet with them sometimes several times during the winter and early spring so that we get an idea of what we're looking for, what's happening with the orchestra, where the challenges are, where the opportunities are. And then you schedule the bargaining dates with management and they bring their own team and you sit in the room and you start negotiating. Sometimes it's not that complicated. It takes a couple of days and you wrap it up. Other times it can be very, very difficult, particularly if what the management team is looking for are economic concessions from the musicians. Because of course, nobody wants to take a pay cut or lose their benefits. And if the management and the board of directors of the orchestra are dead set on that, negotiations are going to take a long time and sometimes go right up to the last minute, like 11.59 p.m. on August 31st. Yeah. Other times you say, well, you know, we're not going to have an agreement now, but let's play and keep talking for a while. And so you start the season and you play and talk. Ultimately, you get an agreement. You always get an agreement at some point. 
even the most difficult situations where there may be a work stoppage, you know, a strike or a lockout, it always settles. There's always an end point. It's just a matter of getting there. Yeah, I mean, what's the longest? Sometimes it's been a year and a half or two years, right, before a contract has been settled? One of the worst situations was with the Minnesota Orchestra, and they were actually locked out for 16 months. That was very difficult. There are other orchestras that have played and talked almost the entire season before coming to an agreement, which is kind of silly because they've already gotten through the first year. But hey, you know, you do what you got to do. Yeah. So what happens is, and obviously I know this because I've been on committees, but so that other people understand how this works. So you elect a committee, in our case, it's eight members of the orchestra and the eight members of the orchestra go and negotiate on behalf of the membership to try and come to terms with management. What percentage of orchestras that you work with bring you into that conversation with that committee versus having the committee without the attorney present to negotiate the contract? I would say probably two-thirds to three-quarters of the time I'm there in the room with the committee and at the table with management. There are a handful of times where there's a kind of healthy relationship between the musicians and management. There's a lot of trust. Neither side brings lawyers to the table, though I advise in the background. Yeah, I would say I probably done a little bit more of that during the pandemic because there are actually some very positive things that came out of the pandemic orchestras where there were problems in the past, found themselves with their interests aligned during the pandemic and were able to work things out pretty easily. And I just would be in the background. But most of the time I'm at the table and I'm the one doing the talking, making the proposals, responding. Okay, so you're actually doing the talking in that situation. Typically, yeah. Okay. And is that standard in, let's say, the union contract industry and the collective bargaining industry? Or is this something that's a little different because it's an orchestra? I would say that is pretty standard. There's usually a union lawyer at the table. Sometimes, though, the the lawyer sits back and lets either a local officer or a committee chair do the talking and just kind of observes at the table. I'd be happy to do that if that's what the committee wanted, but I haven't really run into that yet. Most of the time, they're they're plenty happy to let me do the talking. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you ever gone in by yourself without the committee? No, no, that, that doesn't happen officially. What can happen sometimes is a sidebar between myself and management's attorney, or I do have situations where management doesn't bring an attorney. They just have their lead negotiator. And I'll do a sidebar. Usually that happens towards the end of the process when you're almost there, but you still have some gaps, particularly on economics. And so the sidebar is for purposes of saying, hey, if we propose this, would that get it done? Or if we agreed to that, would it get it done? And you can kind of float things unofficially. And that's a very helpful process, actually, at the end of the day, because then you can make your final proposal and know it's going to be accepted. Yeah. So unions in this country seem to have kind of a bad rap. (laughs) What's your thought on unions and how they work when it comes to collective bargaining in the orchestra setting versus outside of that? Well, actually, I think there's growing public support for unions these days. There is kind of a low point that they hit, but I think most people now are recognizing that unions are pretty helpful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um, And let's face it, the anti-union sentiment in this country was driven by 
powerful corporate interests. Who is on the other side is the employer and who contributes to politicians' employers. There's a, sort of a false equivalency that sometimes anti-union people raise. They say, well, corporations spend a lot of money in politics and unions spend a lot of money in politics. So it balances out. No way. I mean, it's like 100 to 1, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, unions just don't have those kinds of resources. So there were a lot of powerful economic interests that really want to put unions in their place and avoid having a union in the workplace if at all possible. And so you have to ask yourself, why is that? Well, because it's better for the employer if there's no union there, which means it's better for the workers if there is. Yeah. So when it comes to the orchestra business, I mean, this, this is the classic need for a union because you have kind of an imbalance of supply and demand. There aren't that many jobs available and there are a lot of musicians looking for it. So if there was no union workplace, there was no union there and management could just pay whatever it needed to pay to get people, it would really be a race to the bottom because there's always somebody out there who's willing to do the job for less. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, and, and then it wouldn't be a living. And it actually, it wasn't for a long, long time until really the, and Ixom helped with this starting in the 60s, being an orchestral musician was really not something you could live on, mm-hmm. well, even in the unionized workplaces. But certainly in a non-union setting, musicians are incredibly vulnerable because management really yeah. just kind of cut their pay whenever they want. And they figure, okay, well, if somebody doesn't like it, they can leave, we'll get somebody else. You know, so the biggest advantage of unions and orchestras is to provide job security. Mm -hmm. You know, once you get in and you get tenure, you're there. And there's common terms and conditions of employment for everybody. It's absolutely necessary in order to be able to make a living as an orchestral musician. Yeah. And when would you say that the union started to have enough power to really make the orchestra a place that you could make a decent living. I guess there was a time between the 60s and the 90s that saw a lot of growth. So orchestras themselves grew, and then the union musicians were able to bargain pretty decent terms and conditions of employment such that it actually became a viable career. You and I went to uh, college probably early 90s, right? That's when we were graduated from music school. And at that time, it was known that, okay, you could get a job as an orchestral musician and have a living. That was a recent development. It took a while for orchestras to get to that place, yeah. but eventually they did. Then, it, you know, growth kind of leveled off. I would call the orchestra business a mature industry. Most orchestras aren't going to be seeing explosive growth going forward. It's just going to be steady progress. There are a few orchestras where maybe they're in a city that's booming And they didn't have a great orchestra to begin with, and they want to build one. So in those cases, you get to see a lot more growth. What are some of those? So I would would put Kansas City in that bucket. I mean, they've made great strides, and that has really transformed into an excellent job. Nashville was heading in that direction until the pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. and that kind of threw a wrench into everything, but, you know, they may be back on track now. We have a contract there. Oh, good. And that's a city that is just going gangbusters. I mean, every time I go there, I don't recognize it because there's 40 new buildings. Yeah. <laughs> it's thriving. There's a ton of money in town. And the orchestra, I think, can and should reflect that. 
Yeah, and they do, up until the pandemic, they've taken their orchestra pretty seriously as part of the musical community. But yeah, it was not a good look what happened during the pandemic for them just closing the doors and not really operating. Yeah, that was one of my more difficult situations. But they are back working again now and they have a contract. And yeah, that hall is, I mean, if that's not the most beautiful orchestra hall in the country, it's pretty close. It's just gorgeous and the sound is fantastic. Yeah. And there are a few orchestras that actually pay a living wage that are outside union membership, aren't there? Yeah, there's there's only really one that I can think of that is not a union orchestra, which is the Naples Philharmonic in Florida. There's another orchestra, the Seattle Symphony, is not part of the American Federation of Musicians, but they're still a union orchestra. They just split off and have their own union. Ah, okay. That makes sense. But they still do collective bargaining and grievances and arbitration and all the typical things in a union workplace because they're they're a union. Yeah. So in your role as general counsel to the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians, which we call ICSOM for short, what issues do you find take up most of your time? I think there's a real dividing line pre-pandemic and pandemic time. Pre-pandemic, a lot of what I, I did was general... Education and information sharing with respect to orchestras. So the way Exum works, there are 52 orchestras. Each of them elects a delegate. And we have an annual conference, usually in August. And so all the delegates come to the conference. Other musicians can come if they want to. And officers from AFM locals and from the national. And a lot of that is kind of helping people learn the basics of labor law then sometimes more advanced concepts and working with them and providing options for their negotiations and where they can help take their orchestras in the future. That kind of changed rapidly once the pandemic hit. And at that point, there was a real need for someone to be giving industry-wide legal guidance. There were, you know, new things that we were dealing with, like safety protocols for transmissible disease. That's not something that orchestras had ever had to do before. Special provisions were needed for musicians who were at risk and couldn't work. And then, of course, once the vaccines became available, vaccination policies. Now, all of these have to be bargained on a local basis because every orchestra is a little different. Mm-hmm. But there were certain concepts that when I got into the pandemic, realized, okay, we should try to all be on the same page with some of these things. And so I did my best to kind of work with every Exxon orchestra if I could, but certainly in conferences and Zoom calls and town hall meetings, just to try to make sure everybody was on the same track. The best thing about Exxon is the information sharing that one orchestra can see what's going on in all the other orchestras. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was just particularly important during the pandemic. That was a fair amount of, of work. But of course, you know, I'm not going to take uh, credit for it because Ixum has a governing board of really dedicated volunteers. I mean, they put in tons of hours and give up a lot of their lives to help their colleagues and orchestras around the country. Yeah. And it's a real privilege to work with them and, and with all the Ixum delegates. 
Do you find that being in that position gives you more of a bird's eye view as to what's happening to all the orchestras at once, which helps inform your negotiating strategies? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I work with about or have worked with about two dozen orchestras at one time or another, particularly during the last year and a half. Most of them are some orchestras. There are a few Ropo orchestras, which is a different players conference for smaller orchestras. But as Ixum Council, I have a pretty good sense about what's going on in just about every orchestra generally. I mean, sometimes I don't know details, but I have a pretty good bird's eye view, as you put it. And that's been really helpful. Yeah, I bet. Well, if you could go back to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to him? <laughs> I'd say floss more. Every day, floss. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and exercise more. Yeah. You know, things like that. But in terms of my career path, you know, the music path is a very narrow one. Uh-huh. You read about figure skaters or gymnasts and they basically train to do that one thing since they were in childhood. Musicians are not all that different. Yeah. You are in the practice room several hours a day from when you're young And you can miss out on some things, and you can miss out on life experiences that way. You know, and I did. I mean, I I always sort of resisted. I always kind of wanted to try new things and not be in that narrow path. But I could have done better with that, Uh you know, and studied different subjects, done just some completely different things. Because at the end of the day, it probably wouldn't have hurt my musical development. In fact, it might have helped. Because as long as you can still get your few hours a day in, it doesn't matter what you do on the rest of the time. You'll be all right. <laughs> That's true. And there is so much. It's, it's a lifetime of knowledge of all the other things that you can learn, even around music and around culture and around art that inform how we do things, how we interpret things, how Absolutely. we play things. They all sort of go together. And if you spend... We're so myopic as musicians. We spend so much of our life in a practice room. I've joked a lot with people. You know that thing that you had between the age of, I don't know, six and 16? People are like, yeah, that's called a childhood. (laughs) Most musicians didn't have that. (laughs) Because we were locked in a room somewhere practicing and trying to be a perfectionist at whatever it is that we were trying to accomplish. Yep. Yeah, that lasts a little while, too. Most musicians, they go to either a conservatory or a music school as part of a university, but it's still kind of an insular conservatory world. And so you miss out on things, you know, the kind of the way <laughs> a lot of other people go to college, which is spend their first two years partying before they figure out what they want to do. That option wasn't there for musicians, you know, you just couldn't yeah. do that, which, you know, is probably a good thing, but it does kind of deprive you. Like you say myopic, that's, that's a good term because you really do have to be focused on this one thing and it's best to try to broaden horizons as much as possible. So how challenging was it for you then when you tried to broaden your horizon right from music into law school? Yeah, well, <laughs> it was interesting because I had had about 12 years between when I finished my music education and when I went to law school. So I was a little out of the habit of like going to class and all of that. <laughs> you know, and it, I would say it took me about a semester to get adjusted. And then it was it was great. And I actually really liked law school. I had a great time in law school. It was just so interesting. All these new subjects that I could learn and understand. It was fun. And that was a pretty new building when you started there, right? Oh, with my law school? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, it was a yeah, beautiful building, Chicago Camp College of Law, and right at the end of my commuter train line. So it was very convenient. <laughs> Perfect. Well, is there any other advice you'd like to offer to our audience that we might have missed? Uh, I don't know if I'm someone who should be dispensing advice. I mean, I know, I know what, how I did with things. You know, everybody has to follow their own path, of course. But in, in terms of being a musician, yeah, I think the idea of broadening your horizons as much as possible is always good. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of getting away from that, that narrow path where the only thing that matters is how you play and striving for perfection. There's more to life than that. Yeah, that is true. And where can people find you online? Oh, it's not too hard. Uh, <laughs> I have a website, casearslaw.com. I'm on Facebook. Facebook is a good resource for musicians in particular, orchestra news, what's going on. A lot of that is on Facebook. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Well, thanks for having me here. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Be sure and catch our next episode, which will be number 20. For the first time, we will be interviewing not one, but three of my colleagues in the cello section and talking about the most recent auditions we had in October, where we listened to 99 candidates. If you are on the audition trail or just interested in what we are listening for, you don't want to miss this one. Rainer Eudicus will join us again, along with Tommy Carpenter and Brad Ritchie. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me.